You're listening to the Running in Production podcast, where developers and engineers talk about their tech stacks, lessons learned, and general tips from running web apps in production. Here's Nick and today's guest. Welcome to Running in Production. Today I'm with Marcelo Labre, who is running Phoenix and Elixir in production to power the website remote.com, which is a place for anyone to find remote work. Marcelo, welcome to the show. Thank you. Happy to be here. Yeah. So do you want to start off by introducing yourself and letting people know a little bit more about the app that we're going to go over today? Sure. Happy to. So hi, everyone. I'm Marcelo. I'm CTO and co-founder at Remote. Uh, Remote is, in a nutshell, solving uh, global employment. So we make it easy for companies to hire remote people uh, without all the hustling and problems of going through the contract, payrolling, uh, across seas, which means most of the times creating your own entity, creating companies overseas and stuff like that. If you work remotely, you know how painful that is. And so we're pretty much tackling this issue and helping people work remotely, um, improving their lives and all that, hopefully uh, as soon as possible. Yeah, I was actually really surprised that uh, you guys nailed that remote.com domain name. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's been an interesting journey, to be honest. Um, myself and my co-founder, CEO, Yob, we picked up this, this, uh, um, this project one year ago. We've always been super passionate about remote working, and, but mainly doing the things you love, uh, which means not only enjoying your, your work, but enjoying your life um, as, as, as a whole. And we, we, we met the original founders of remote.com uh, last year, a bit over a year ago. And we, uh, through a bit of discussion and back and forth, we ended up taking over uh, the project. And we remote.com was basically a job board, uh, has been one of the de facto platforms for remote working uh, for a long time as a job board. But our vision goes well beyond that. Um, as I said before, what we envision is that working remotely, independently of who you are and for whom you're going to be working, it should be easy. Um, it should be fine and, and you shouldn't go through all the hoops of trying to understand how you're going to get paid, how you're going to invoice or are you even going to have a contract are you going to have your rights being taken care of? Are you going to run into problems with local government? And so we wanted to fix this. And so um, working on top of this uh, job platform, uh, we decided to create this global solution to do exactly that, solve global employment. Nice. So you mentioned uh, remote.com used to be like a job board. Did you end up rewriting the code base from scratch or did they have like an existing code base that you took over? Yes and yes. So um, the previous code base was um, Python uh, using Flask and a couple other frameworks. From past experience, um, I knew for a fact that this would be something that I would like, love to improve, not only from a cost perspective, but also from a performance and resiliency point of view. And so the moment we decided, all right, we're going to do this, 
the first decision is it's going to be a full rewrite, a very happy one, to be honest. So when it came down to it, you know, what makes Phoenix a good fit for your application? A lot, a lot of things, to be honest. I can I can give you a bit of a bit of insight in what made me choose Phoenix. So this is not the first time first time I'm working with Phoenix. Um, I came by it in two thousand and fourteen or fifteen. Can't remember anymore. I used to be a um, heavy Ruby and Ruby on Rails user slash developer slash engineer slash do it all. Um, it's a lot of slashes. Yes, <laughs> I feel that 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 comes with Ruby itself. And I, I I loved it. I still do. I think it's one of the best um, um, engineering tools and 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 that you can have in your tool belt. But at, after running a couple of well, a bit more than a couple to be honest um, apps in production, what I felt is that there were several things that even though I was super happy always developing using Ruby uh, at the end of the day there was something missing either performance or reliability or the sheer speed of it um, and sometimes predictability as well I have to say I was a bit of a um, try out a new thing kind of a person at the time and I was every single weekend I would do one of those to-do lists with the newest <laughs> framework uh, whatever, independently of the language or framework it, it was. I mean, from Node, Python, Ruby, Scala, Go. Um, and eventually I, I came across Elixir in Phoenix. Well, Elixir wasn't entirely new to me. Um, I, I come from a telco background, so Erlang is something that y you, you hear back and forth in one way or another. Um, but Phoenix was entirely new to me. Um, and... I remember trying it out for a weekend and I was actually surprised by how fast I could get something done and how easy it is and, and it was and the sheer performance of it was astonishing. So it it became quickly became my um, sort of secondary tool. You know, uh, one of the things I always liked is to know and have many tools and use the one more appropriate for the job at hand. And Elixir quickly became the go-to for all the things that require performance, um, uh, reliability, and all that. And after a while, it actually became my number one uh, tool for the job, um, given how fast things I could build something. And, and honestly, I could just have something running for months, years without having to reboot a single server without having to go into trying to understand what happened why do I have a memory leak uh, why am I getting pinged in the middle of the night and I sort of fell in love with it to answer your question there were many factors uh, that drove me to use Phoenix the first time I used it in, in real production was for microservice it, it was heavy heavily used several thousands of requests um, per minute and honestly it was no surprise the moment I, I launched it put it in production it's something that runs smoothly um, there's it's highly predictable of course you can always run into issues but um, easily to overcome and, 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 and 
gives you sort of a peace of mind that is, to be honest, it's, it's, it's hard to come by these days. And this is, in a nutshell, what drove me to use Phoenix. Nice. So did the rest of the team have uh, experience with that, or is it just you to start with? Part of the team already knew from, the, from previous projects and companies. Um, and to be honest, I was sort of the, the one to blame why they also got addicted to Elixir um, and, <laughs> and Phoenix. Um, and it's very easy, right? The only, the, all it takes is, here's a website, go through its tutorial, let me know what you think at the end. Then more times than not, is like someone at all, just with with all that comes with it. I remember feeling the same the, the first time that I, I went through um, the uh, Ruby on Rails tutorial um, and I felt exactly the same at the end. I was like, holy, how, how can I do this with a couple of lines of code? And with Phoenix, now with several more years in my belt, with all that you know, and with such a simple tool and framework, how far it can take you and, and your team and your company for all that matter, it's amazing. Yeah, so I started working with it as well not, not too long ago, like just hacking away on a side project. And it's interesting for such an immature framework in terms of like, you know, compared to like Rails has been going on for 10 plus years. Yeah, you can just get things done pretty fast. Oh yeah. And you just feel happy about the code that you write. Definitely. So is the application itself, uh, is it a monolithic app or do you have it broken up into like umbrella apps or microservices? Okay, so it's a very good question. It is a very old discussion, monoliths versus microservices. And I always, always like to say yes, all, and none at the same time. I, I believe that for any tool or service, um, or especially if you're starting a company, it does what matters is how fast you can ship, right? Of course, usually monoliths are well-known for letting you do and hack something together that you can sell pretty easy and pretty fast. And I usually and uh, choose a monolith as my first approach. I like as a second step to always think about neo-monoliths and then microservices. Um, what, I, what I call a neo-monolith is, is typically the when you when you're writing your monolith you prepare the structure and code base in such a way that you decouple the different layers um, in a way that later when you want to move to a microservice it is fairly easy to decouple code and of course there's always a bit of trouble here and there but it enables you to separate things in different responsibilities and 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 perform the perform the migration a lot smoother than if you have to spend some time releasing cables and patching things up, taking a bit of the duct tape and all that. But um, remote is a monolith. It's not a huge monolith. Um, I'm, I'm proud to say it. It's um, fairly okay-ish monolith with a good structure, good code base, good coverage. And it will be ready to move when time comes to migrate to a microservice for sure. So you said it's like an okay size app. Do you know like roughly uh, like lines of code or modules? Um, 
I hate to measure things, but it's like just to give people an idea. Um, I'm going to say in terms of files, and I'm going to keep it to maybe the lib folder. It's usually where you store most of your code. I'm going to say roughly 500 um, files. Okay. And like many thousands of lines of code, I guess. Uh, yeah, for sure. I always try to keep um, as minimum as possible the amount of lines of code per file. Something I picked up from Ruby um, and also for keeping your sanity. <laughs> um, and we separate things and in, in, in uh, like to create several different thin layers. So I prefer, to be honest, to have more files than less files and bigger but bigger, more lines of code. So I'd say that if you put a, a, an average file around 300, 400 lines of code, that would be pretty much it. Are you using uh, Phoenix Context in your application? Yes, we are, heavily so, as a basis, but that's not the way we structure it. We we use not only Context, um, so the, the, the idea of Context is great, uh, for you to structure the way that you think about different entities in your code base and probably even domains, if you want to go that far. But we always also use the concept, like this is something I coined, don't, don't pin me down on it. I call it SRP, uh, Single Responsibility Principle. It's, some, it's, it's, it's an approach that I've been using for several years now. It'll basically, you strip down your structure into handlers, services, and finders, and each of them has their own responsibility, uh, meaning that you can, within a context, you segregate things. So, so when a request comes in, the first thing to answer that request is a handler, a controller, of course, but a handler. If there are things to be done, calls or processing, you'll, you'll use a service for it. Uh, if you need to query something or fetch something from another service, you use a finder. And you use a combination of services and finders um, to return to the handler and the controller the, re the response you wanted in the first place. Hmm. So when you talked a little bit before about like structuring your app to be able to branch out into microservices later if need be, like this is the type of structure you were talking about to make that a little bit easier? Exactly. So the idea behind this is that I can easily replace the content of a finder, of a service, or a handler with an external call, an external network call or other service call. And the rest of the code is none the wiser. So if tomorrow I want to break this into microservices, I can. So do you know of any like, uh, you're not going to know like URLs off the top of your head maybe, but do you know of any blog posts or like did you write any blog posts about this type of... Uh application style? I'm going to sound a bit biased. I did. Uh, I got inspired by oldish blog post from a Ruby community uh, about refactoring um, your code. And it talked about uh, different patterns. And at the time, I thought about this. And these were the patterns that would make sense in the way that I think and the way that I like to structure my code. It doesn't apply to everyone or to every context, of course. Later, I, I worked in a Python co heavy code base and we had to detangle um, major monolith into several services, microservices. And we used this approach. It was amazing. It worked, allowed us to 
increase coverage immensely, test coverage immensely, separate the monolith into different microservices. It was great. And eventually I ended up writing my own blog post about it, um, how to use it in Python, a couple of examples and whatnot. And I will soon, um, I've done this as well in, in Elixir for a couple of projects. I didn't write anything about it yet because I wanted to have more than one code base running this um, with heavy usage and heavy iteration. Because one thing is you use a methodology, you use it in a couple of projects, that's fine. But if you don't have a project and a code base that is continuously um, being worked on and improved, then maybe you just got lucky with the methodology you used. Maybe it just didn't matter at all. And so I wanted to make sure it worked and it, 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 it was sane um, because what works for Python or for Ruby may not work for Elixir or another functional um, um, programming language. And I have to say that it's working out very well and neatly. Um, I hopefully will write soon something about it. Nice. Yeah, I'll make sure to update the show notes uh, when that becomes available. And I do commend you on, you know, holding off on that until you get, you know, multiple apps written, a bit of real world experience with that code. You know, I, I think a lot of people kind of look for that, right? It's like, it's so easy to invent something. And then, yeah, like you say, like you get lucky and it just works. But then like before you know it, it falls apart. Yeah, indeed. Um, it, it is it is fairly easy to go into that long, deep, dark rabbit hole. Today, I mean, you go on Hacker News, you see a new framework every single day, right? Um, mm -hmm. Someone made something new, new programming languages. I mean, great, it's amazing. But what's also a lot out there is false conclusions confusing correlation and causation um, and to be honest if you're going to adopt something you, you need to understand what you're adopting but um, if I'm gonna write a blog post and say look this is amazing take my word for it fine it is what it is but if if you eventually influence someone to actually use it and then it goes bad it's not like you're responsible for it, but if you're putting it, if you're giving something back to the community, you might as well just take your time and, and be sure it's something vi uh, good and positive uh, because it's very easy to just write a blog post and, and um, about something and, and, and claim you have good results, but the impact, you just don't know and you need to measure it. Right? I think it's great to give back to the community. I love people that just... I mean, write whatever they're thinking of at the moment. And if they help someone, great, that's amazing. But when you accumulate a bit of experience and you know that people will probably read what you're writing, I mean, I, I prefer to take a more cautious approach and, and do it well, do it well. Yeah, I think it does come down to like the developer reading the post. It's like his or her responsibility to you know, at least go through it, you know, evaluate what's going on, like determine like, is this just one of those random blog posts or is there like a track record? Like, yeah, these are decisions that you need to make as a developer before deciding if you're going to take on something new like that. As you get more experience and, and as you build more things, as you get more public exposure, you also get a bit of responsibility, right? Um, what if tomorrow one of the main contributors to Elixir decides to write a blog post saying that 
something that he just created is amazing and it's the best. Odds are a lot of people are going to follow that, right? I mean, and, and at the end of the day, there's a certain responsibility. And and you you I don't I don't think anyone would do it out of their bad intentions. But I mean, if you can, especially in my position, if I can actually publish something, knowing um, and willingly having numbers to say, look, this is great. If you want to follow it, follow it because it works. I prefer to be on that side. Right. So just to go back to the remote.com site, you know, using Phoenix, is this a, a server rendered app or is it API based with like some type of JavaScript front end? Current remote.com is a very typical for Phoenix app. Uh, it's not server side rendered. It, um, we use React um, for most of it, not all. The, what we're building and we're going to launch soon, is, which is going to become the main platform for remote, something that will allow any company to hire anyone, um, as I said, in any point of, of the globe, hopefully, um, it's going to be separated. So they're going to be, they're going to uh, be two concurrent apps. One will, who's, which is today's app, um, is going to maintain the job platform. And the second one will be responsible for all the things related to the contracting, payrolling, onboarding of employees, um, etc. And this new app is, of course, um, Phoenix and Elixir as a, as a backend. And there's a next um, JS app which is ser uh, serving um, uh, the front end, also React, of course. So I'm not too, too familiar with Next.js. Is that something that uh, does make those pages like server rendered yes. for crawlers? Yeah. yeah. So it helps you. In our case, there were two reasons for it. One was, yes, we want to make SEO something simple and something that uh, works uh, to our advantage uh, without going through, going through a lot of hoops. But also, so we have two amazing front-end engineers. And one of the things that is, 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 is amazing is, so Phoenix allows you to go very far, right, in terms of this collaboration. But front-end, especially, uh, um, of course, JavaScript working um, um, uh, developers, they have their own methodologies and um, they write their own uh, with their own code style. And they're used to their own structures, and um, on, on the other on the other hand, backend Phoenix um, and Elixir uh, developers they are used to following a certain uh, style, completely different structures, and of course different code base. What I feel is that when you try to sort of keep everything in the same tone, in the same code base. It will work, of course. You can scale this to many millions of users, many uh, thousands of uh, requests per second, and that's fine, as long as you you, you keep your standards and your style guides, etc. But if you give people freedom to work in their preferred environment, odds are productivity is going to increase. And so this was also one of the gambles that we did with this new platform: was provide the front end team uh, with their own code base, completely independent. They have to know nothing about Elixir and Phoenix. And 
the same for um, the the API and the backend developers. So they work in their own um, in their own zoo. They work in their own playground, and um, they communicate through a well-defined and established uh, protocol. And that's it. So we, we we tried it out. We I had, of course, of course, this this approach brings a bit of overhead. Instead of one app, you will now need to have two apps. You need to sync up um, all the API the, the API calls, communication protocols. You now have double the work in terms of deployment, in terms of managing the infrastructure, uh, and all the overhead that comes with it. And it's one of the 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 the, the price. Uh, it's part of the price that you need to pay uh, when you go down the microservice route or down the split the service route. But it it is worthwhile for us. I mean, uh, definitely. Yeah. So it sounds like you probably have two Git repos then, right? One for each the back end and one for the front end. Mm-hmm. So we have one for actually three. One for the job platform one for the new API and the uh, the other for the front end. So how does that work in practice for your front end devs, like not needing to even touch the, the Phoenix backend? Do they just have like, like they just make like postman calls to that or whatever, or? Yeah, so we, one of the things we do is we document a lot. So we, we highly believe in asynchronous work. Uh, we, we write often about it. Um, we 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 think that remote and distributed teams require a lot um, a good asynchronous um, discipline, and this one of the tenets of this discipline is you write down everything. You don't assume things. You make sure that if the bus factor happens, if everyone gets hit by a bus, then whoever comes next has everything written down and should be able to run whatever they need to run. So one of the the easiest things is if you ask someone new someone new that joins the company or the team just give them the project and say look run it and whatever problems they face you write it down. Um, and 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 so it is easy and fairly simple for anyone either a backend to run the frontend uh, app and vice versa. And we're not too strict about who does where and what. So this means that if someone from the front end wants to do something in the back end, fine, and vice versa, perfect, it's great. Um, people tend to specialize in one area or another or become a jack of all trades, master of none. And, and that's fine. It is very easy for someone to just grab one of the apps, get it running. So you you can mock things with Postman or something similar, or you can just run the app um, and and go through the the quick README that we have for all the apps, um, and is fairly simple to set up as well. Right. So when it comes to that, do you have your apps running inside of Docker or no? Um, we do run our apps in um, on, in Docker containers, uh, in staging and production. I have to admit that locally, we don't do it a bit by choice, to be honest. Uh, we haven't found the need to do it locally. Um, um, I never, uh, I think that for there's specific gains to be have to be had with uh, Docker and, and, and 
immutable environments, especially if you need to run them um, and, and scale up and down. A lot of advantages there. But locally, given the size of the team, it hasn't been needed. Of course, I mean, in, in past teams and companies, once you go the route of microservices, it becomes pretty much a need and it's fundamental. It's a requirement, but at the, at, at the moment, not really. Okay. Yeah, it seems to be, uh, I've noticed that it's pretty hit or miss with Docker in development between teams of your size. What I usually say is whatever works. If mm-hmm. if you prefer to have a clean environment and uh, run every, everything um, locally as you would in staging and production, fine, it's perfect. As long as you get the productivity that you were hoping for. Otherwise, if it, it's faster to do the things in, in, in the correct way, of course, but just do it locally, it's perfect. Yeah, yeah. Always comes back down to like what you're working on because I know... I do some freelance work and for me it's like I'm juggling, you know, 15 projects, right? I need to use Docker in development all the time because otherwise, yeah, there's just too many conflicts of versions and database versions and all this other stuff. But if you're just focused on one application, then yeah, I mean, it's nice to have it maybe to get set up quicker, but it's not like as essential. Oh yeah, in my for opinion. sure. Yeah, I mean, you're totally right. Um, even, I mean, the moment we have to go two, three other services, um, I mean, there's if you ha- if you want to maintain all the different versions, all the different environments and whatnot. I mean, it's it it will get you crazy. Yeah, then it's good. So, do you want to talk a little bit more about the rest of your tech stack then? So we know we're using Phoenix, and then I don't think you mentioned what you're using on the front end. Was it React? React, exactly. Okay, so what's next on the list there? All right, so very typical app. Um, we use Postgres, Redis, Elasticsearch, very typical. We are hosted in, in AWS. We use the, uh, the, the ECS um, a containerization. And I have to say, not super happy with it. Um, I used to, to run uh, Kubernetes before, I, but because we... Uh, before remote, but because remote is such a small team, I didn't want to have a full Kubernetes cluster managed by us. I thought it was a bit of overhead, but we will definitely eventually migrate to it uh, the moment we can spare some time to do it. As I said, Postgres, Redis, um, Elasticsearch for search. Um, We use a bit of caching with Redis. Uh, Main database, of course, Postgres. Our continuous integration and deployment as well as our main development um, methodology goes through GitLab. Uh, she's our probably most important um, tool as, as engineering team. Yeah, GitLab is awesome. So are you using a self-hosted or the managed one? Managed one, yeah. Cool. Yeah, no, you mentioned a lot in the last couple of minutes, so let, let's rewind just a little bit there. Yeah. Um, when it comes to Elasticsearch, so I've done, I think, 12 of these uh, interview so far, and you're the first one who is using Elasticsearch. So, do you want to go into a little bit about why you're using it in your application and what it's what it's doing for you? Sure. What do you want when you go into a job platform or whatever platform that has a search button, a search uh, text box? What you want is to input something and to be able to get predictable results. It's not that simple to execute. You can do 
okay-ish. Uh, if you do one of those uh, crazy SQL queries with a lot of likes and I likes and stuff like that, it can get you far. However, if you go onto a, a platform and search for Docker engineer or DevOps um, engineer or backend Elixir software developer position, all these are totally viable uh, um, queries and they should all return um, uh, something, right? If there is record for records for it. So there are two reasons why we use Elasticsearch. One is it allows us to tweak the search engine and show the results in the way we want it to. And that means predictable results and everyone wants predictable results. Boring is good um, in, 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 in search boxes. Um, but at the same time, it allows us to do a bit of caching as well. So Elasticsearch um, is it's a great, I'm going to call it database, but it's mostly a search engine that allows you to um, parse um, a lot of text and based on heuristics, um, a lot of machine learning, regular expressions, etc., return exactly what you expect it to return. So it powers our search engine, internal search engine, and allows us to re, uh, return quick um, results, not only from a search point of view, but also from a caching point of view. And, and what I mean caching is, so imagine you're, you're going um, remote.com and you search for Elixir jobs, right? It's great if we can tell you, look, there are 13 um, Elixir job ads. But then if you click on something and it takes a bit to load, or if the preview is too low, is too slow, then it's a it's a bit off-putting, right? So Elasticsearch allows you to also cache a bit of these results. And when you're creating an, an experience, which is I'm gonna type something, I'm gonna get a bit of autocomplete there. I select one of the options and then boom, there's a list of results. And then you click on one and you almost immediately or instantaneously get that um, object that you just clicked on, right? So that's a good feeling to have. That's a good user experience to have rather than clicking on something, waiting a bit to load and then the images show up and then eventually the text or vice versa. So that's something that we wanted to create some uh, an, an, a predictable experience and a pretty decent and enjoyable user experience as well. Right, so basically you're using it for full text search primarily with caching. I remember a long time ago, I looked into Elasticsearch and I don't know if you're using this feature or maybe you can clarify this one for me, but it had something to where like you can subscribe to a search term and then get notified when documents match that term. Well, something like that. Most of the databases have um, usually called a, a pub sub mechanism, meaning that you can literally subscribe to a, a, a certain query and then it either through something similar to WebSockets uh, or, 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 or long polling, you get notified by these results. We're not using this for, because the main use case is not, is not great for it. So mainly when, what we do at other layers is as you type on and look for and interact with certain job ads, if you're logged in, of course, we will be able to suggest 
later, uh, either via email if you opt um, for it, new job ads that match your searches and your interactions with with the platform. Okay. So you mentioned, uh, well, not specifically using WebSockets, but the term WebSockets, and that reminded me, are, are you using any of Phoenix's uh, WebSocket tools like LiveView and Channels? Not yet. Unfortunately, and against my own desires, I have to say that we're not using it yet. It's something that I, the moment it was released and I saw the first blog posts by Chris and, and the first demos, I mean, it just looks amazing. Feels great. We had long discussions uh, between what we, what it could do for us and and for any code base. To be honest, in terms of React versus Live View, how could you? I mean, because Live View allows you to basically create all the the um, um, uh, manipulating what is the visible DOM in 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 such a transparent and easy way, and even for development purposes that you could argue that in certain code bases, it could replace React from a certain point of view, of course. But it, 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 is, it is something we will definitely try on, probably in the job platform, which could be more interesting. We have a lot of features coming. I mean, if we had, if we, the day had 36 hours, we would use the entire 36 hours. <laughs> but for sure, I mean, we will see it. Um, if, if you follow remote.com, I'm sure you're going to see it um, in the job platform. Uh, you're going to see some cool things there. Uh, if you don't, keep an eye out and we'll probably write about it as well. Nice. Yeah. I think like the best and worst thing about LiveView is I think it was announced initially like uh, 15 months ago, you know, over a year ago. And it's like some of the stuff is usable for sure now, but it's like still so up in the air that like, yeah, it's hard to adapt it for like a real project because there's so little proof of it working, you know? Yeah, it, I it's mean, tricky. the basis for it, I mean, the core of it is something well-established. Um, it's a mix of, of using WebSockets um, and um, uh, amazing Jun servers. Of course, the front end is, 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 is the front end connection is, is where the, the novelty of the thing is. As all things, it will take time to mature. But from what I've seen, a bit of finicky tests that I've done and my own crappy projects, I have to say I'd feel, I, will, I feel comfortable in trying it out um, and launching it um, to our users. I think that if you ask me, is it robust enough? I can't answer that. What I can tell you is that it works. And if everyone waits for things to be super robust, we would still be using Internet Explorer 5. <laughs> yeah, that is true. Yeah, at some point, you just have to bite the bullet and use it and see how it goes. That's how things progress, right? It's when someone decides to take take the risk and then share the learnings. I mean, we've done it ourselves. I knew for a fact that the first project I, I've, I've done, uh, I did years ago with Elixir and, and most of the... I, because I from a Ruby background you would there's a gem for everything and anything right um on elixir is uh oh but this would be great why don't you write it yourself and um sometimes you did yeah you did i mean well throughout this project we also had a couple of challenges things we needed from 
um, existing libraries that we needed to extend and we we worked and then uh, we, we contributed to a couple of uh, open source projects and that's how things go right I mean if you ask me oh but it's uh, it's not battle tested in terms of like Erlang that it has decades of active development Ruby on Rails the same and can you get the same the same support in terms of uh, available libraries well for sure, there's not not the same amount of libraries, um, but the overall it's not just one thing or the other. It's the overall package that comes around it. It's the community, it's the performance, it's the re reliability, it's the, the 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 years of accumulated experience from Erlang projects and and also, of course, since Ruby inspired projects that joined this amazing, that created this amazing community around Elixir. So yeah, at, at one point or another, it's just, you, you have to bite the bullet and, <laughs> and, and either take the risk or not. Yeah, no, the Elixir community is great. Like every time I happen to ask a question, it's always like, I get multiple really good answers within, you know, a couple hours sometimes and, and things that are not like really well documented because, you know, I'm asking in the first place. So that's awesome that we can get that assistance so quickly. Now, just to switch gears, you mentioned using AWS with ECS. Are you also using other services on AWS, like RDS and things like that? Yeah. So uh, our Postgres instance is actually an RDS. Uh, Elasticsearch is uh, also managed by, by AWS, and same as um, Elasticsearch. As we started out, I tried as much as possible to not be the diehard engineer they always like to be, which is build everything yourself, run everything yourself, manage everything yourself. So I wanted to keep it simple. I wanted to make sure it could iterate as fast as possible because at the end of the day, hardware is less expensive than engineers, right? So I had to do this in, in a way that I could be at peace with uh, the, the the architecture that I wanted, but also the, at the same time be mindful that we were only three, right? And one at the beginning was just myself doing doing a bit of everything, and the back end and another front end. And so um, uh, we committed a bit to uh, AWS at the beginning of the project. Did you look at other platforms like GCP as well, or just went for AWS? Look, I've my with my experience. Um, I've used them all. I think I've, I've used extensively um, uh, Google Cloud, Heroku, AWS, Microsoft Azure, um, DigitalOcean, you name it. Um, I have all the love for most of them, but maybe because I, there was, there's a simple, the single, I wanted a single place that has all and that I'd be used to and that I, I could expand upon if need be with a certain um, uh, easy to easy to use, so I picked AWS for this just for I don't know maybe um, because I was used to it, but um, that's it. Yeah, I think it's one of those things where like if you're going to go on board with like you know you want to use many services from a provider, you can't really go wrong with AWS. Do you want to go into a little bit about the specs for the machines that you're running on ECS? Like what what do the instances look like? Sure. So before going into that, um, I'd like to tell you a bit about um, the current uh, load and performance of um, 
remote, if that's okay, it will help to set up the context. Oh yeah, good call. So um, when we started this, um, as I said, we were running a Python, uh, remote used to be Python based. And the moment we, we picked on a project, it was a bit slow. Um, it had amounted several years of development and then as all projects, eventually it starts to crawl a bit on its knees. So we were at the time with the same uh, metrics we have today, gonna run you through a bit of a couple of numbers, maybe it will help to get a picture of uh, where we were. So we have around every day, 10,000 uh, users on the platform. It amounts to, it depends, it goes in, in some days, 100,000 requests a day, you know, it goes up to a million. So it, it depends on a lot on the season, uh, time of the year, month, weekends are not very busy. And then people come out, uh, <laughs> go to work on Monday and they start looking for jobs. Um, so that's how things work, especially after New Year, New Year, right? Um, everyone oh, yeah. has New Year's resolution. I'm going to find a new job. I'm going to get some time for myself. And then they <laughs> decide to go on remote because work remotely because that's the way to go. I'm kidding. So this means that for these metrics, we were having a bill of around $4,000 a month, right? Which is quite a lot. Um, it's, it's quite a hefty amount. The moment we switched on the new, um, uh, uh, the new version of the app, so entirely Phoenix and Elixir, we're now paying below 500 euros or dollars uh, a month. So it's huge, huge difference. Right? Yeah, that's almost like a 10x difference. Yes, very much. And we're using a very low, I have to tell you that our staging environment runs in 500 megabytes of RAM. And the production environments, which have two to four instances, depending if we're scaling for some specific reason, sometimes for instance, during deployment, because there's a, it's um, a sort of green blue deployment, uh, you scale up to four instances, but it used to gigabytes of RAM each. And to be honest, the through the the memory signature of Elixir and Phoenix is in our case very stable and it never goes above 50% usage. Wow. So about a gig or so roughly for the app. Now are you using what is that one library? Obin? I guess that's the most popular like job processing library. Or are you using that as well or no? For backgrounds? jobs you mean yeah uh we use xq so does, does that run as like um an application or a separate process i haven't used that one so we use it um you can do both um because i'm a bit of a control freak i i set it up in a way that in such a way that i could um have my separated server running so it's the same code base but i run the background jobs um separately from the web instances okay do you have those individually run then on on an, uh, an EC2 instance, or do you have both of those together on one instance? There, um, because it, it separates instances and a bit of a Kubernetes fashion, they're uh, separated. Okay, so when you say like two or four instances running then, it's almost like, what do you have like one worker instance and then three web workers or whatever? So we usually run two web instances and one worker. 
Right. Okay. And then that worker has no problem keeping up with what it needs to do, right? It's Elixir. <laughs> so, yeah. it, it of course, it can be overrun. And I've had cases in the past in different projects that um, I can see also Elixir screaming for its life. But it's not the case here. Yeah, no, that's impressive. It's like you basically have two web instances running that's handling like 100,000 plus page views a day. And it's not just like a static site, you know, loading static content. You know, it's, it's very dynamic. Yeah. Big searches going on. So our average response time is a, a roughly 150 milliseconds measured internally. Uh, we use AppSignal for this. Okay. You mentioned like doing some caching on the Elasticsearch side for like the search results, but are you doing any other caching, like like caching your templates and stuff like that or we, no? We use a bit. So we also use Redis for some tallies and uh, counters, stuff like that. Um, quick things that we need to access. Uh, not full caching, but you can, I mean, you can still call it caching, but um, um, we, we use Cloudflare as well. So it, of course, will also help to cache some of the, 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 the front elements and requests, um, but that's pretty much it. Right. So when it comes to like backend caching stuff, like, you know, things that really make sense, like counters and stuff, it's, it's not like full blown, like Russian doll style caching with rails on every single resource, right? No, not at all. Yeah. That's uh, incredibly efficient. Then. Yes, it is. I mean, it's one of the things that I've, I've that, I, that also made me fall in love with Phoenix and Elixir is how well it manages its resources and how little resources it requires. Yeah. And also how how nicely it frees them. I usually say that it's for um, 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 frameworks and, and, and web apps, it's not just about how you use your memory, but how you free, the, how you free it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I have some nightmares still. <laughs> and it's not necessarily because Rails and Sidekick are bad, it was probably me being an idiot, but in any case, like a sidekick worker was just like growing and growing and growing and growing. And then every week I would restart it and then grow, 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 restart, grow, 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 restart. You know, it became like a whole dance that I didn't like having to do. I think we've all been there, done that at some point or another. So one of the, the, the good things with Elixir and Phoenix is, yes, I have to admit that it's the, the learning curve is not as fast as Ruby. Though it's pretty good, comparing to other, some other coding languages, but I have to admit that performance-wise and 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 memory management-wise, it uh, lets me it it allows me to be a bit more relaxed regarding especially juniors junior developers. Uh, it be, that usually tend to go down the rabbit hole and follow the easy path of just hogging all the things and, and carrying out and, and copying all the structures back and forth and do all those crazy things, which is fine. It's normal. It's it's great. It's it's what's to be expected um, from someone learning, but it allows it, it gives you a bit more peace of mind in that session, in, in that sense. But do you have anything at the infrastructure level too that helps you out with a little bit of peace of mind? Like if memory Usage goes up for X amount of time. Get emailed, like things like yeah, that. Yeah, so AppSignal is great for 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 many things. We I've used it in a couple of projects. We've now been using this since the beginning. It's it's very reliable. It's simple as I like it to be. Um, and fully featured um, in all the things that we need, and it it allows us to track not only performance but also errors, 
monitoring. Um, uh, uh, it also has a good connection with the, the the beam on all the instances, and so you you know you know pretty well what's happening. And if anything is misbehaving, you get a notification, whichever way you want. It has you can connect it to whatever services, third-party services, or just have it emailing you every time uh, something weird happens. Right. Yeah, that stuff is like definitely valuable to have. Oh, yeah. This app, it's been running for almost six months in production, and we never had a, a Velociraptor event. And that's also running at like, you know, pretty decent scale. You know, it's not like two visitors a day. Now, one thing that we didn't really touch on yet is, is remote.com uh, a free or paid service or a little bit of both? It is. Uh, if you want to look for a job, totally free. If you want to apply to a job, totally free. Um, if you want to post a job, there's a price for a job ad. If you, if, if you want to do so, just reach out. We can hand out. I'm more than happy to hand out um, discount codes. Uh, we really want to uh, make sure that so we're really in love with the, the remote way of living and working. And we want to make sure that other people get to have the same experience as we do, right? I am a, a dad to a, a nine-month-old baby, um, a baby boy. And, and to be honest, it's been amazing the experience of having him near me and be able to watch him grow every single day in the middle of those crazy days where things are just crapping out and you just step a step away from your computer and um, cuddle with your nine-month-old baby. It's amazing. Of course, there's also the downside when they cry and scream and poop all over the place. But yeah. um, there's there's so much there that is it's just uh, I, I'd love for other people to experience um, the, the fact that you can get your life back um, rather than spending two hours in commute every single day and feeling miserable and sharing an office with, office with people that smell bad. Um, not saying that's <laughs> right. always the case, but it is very often so. Um, and but, uh, as I said, if you want to post something remote, just give me a holler and happy to give you a, 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 a nice discount code. But what we, the job platform will will not be, is not the center of our product, right? It's not the center of our mission. Our mission is to actually be able to allow people to hire and, and, and be hired um, from companies in the US to hire someone in Portugal, companies in Portugal hiring someone in, in the UK or Spain, France, whatever, without having to worry how that works out in, uh, um, am I legal or not? <laughs> right. Do the payments now, does that all happen through your platform or are you doing that outside of it? Like if someone wants to post a job, are you using Stripe to handle the payment for that? So if you want to post a job ad um, with us, um, you'll 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 get the typical Stripe checkout page. Ah, so are you using Stripe's like self-hosted checkout page, or are you using something else? Yeah, pretty much Stripe, all the way. Yeah, because they made some recent changes. So does that even mean that you need to use some type of uh, Stripe Elixir library, or no? Yes and no. Um, there are parts of Stripe that you can just use full front end. Um, however, because we want to keep track of uh, payments and transactions and all things back and forth, uh, we use an Elixir um, uh, version of Stripe to connect to the API. Do you know which library that is? Uh, I don't show. I don't know by heart, to be honest. Okay, I can just drop it into the show notes later. So, 
do want to just switch gears a little bit here and, and talk a little bit more about your deployment process. So can you let us know, like, how does code get from uh, your dev box into production, especially with the two setups where you have the back end and the front end code? Sure. So it all goes through GitLab. Uh, we have continuous integration and continuous deployment. Um, so basically, we work based on issues, uh, issues that are created either by someone on the technical team, product team, whatever. We create a branch, we commit, and when a merge, merge is uh, uh, when a merge request uh, is is merged, um, then automatically it is deployed to our master um, uh, branch, which is sent directly to our staging environment. And once approved, and once moved into the uh, production branch, it will be deployed into production. So the way we deploy is we use uh, we build Docker images um, for the different environments. And then using the AWS uh, command line, we will uh, request that the images of the containers uh, get uploaded, meaning that new instances will be uh, launched and the old ones will die. And the process is pretty much the same uh, for staging and production. It just so happens that production happens after the staging environment and the configurations are, of course, a bit different. Right. So when it comes to those images, are they, are they being stored on ECR? They're being stored on uh, GitLab. GitLab has a nice Docker registry. It's a, how do I call it? Uh, it's a almost a DevOps uh, one-stop shop. Right. One-stop shop for DevOps. Hard to say. Yeah. <laughs> so how do you deal with secret management in that case? So we use uh, 1Password um, to store things, um, I mean, that need to be stored definitely. Um, and then we use, of course, uh, GitLab also has um, uh, secret management, uh, secret variables management um, tool that allows you to inject um, uh, the, these variables and, and these secrets into the containers that are being run. So we use, of course, the, the GitLab uses uh, runners to do all these things, right? Workers to do all these things. We use our own. So a couple of machines that we have, EC2 machines that we have on AWS. And basically GitLab's inject, um, uh, GitLab injects these variables um, in, in, in the building uh, stage of the, 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 the container. And then that's it. Nice. So when it comes to that, you mentioned instances again. Uh, are you using, like, what instance type are you using? Like, what's, what's the operating system distro? Because we use ECS, uh, you don't actually have access to the machine's uh, uh, operating system. It's a bit like Kubernetes, um, highly abstracted, I'd say. Uh, we're using Elixir's Alpine version for our Docker images, though. And uh, are you using releases then or no? Uh, yeah, of course. I mean, for every instance, um, every image is not actually a mix Phoenix server. It is um, a, a, a release, um, a compiled, of course, version of, 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 of the code. It's a very segregated, it's a very simplistic version. We create a release um, during the, the continuous deployment uh, process. And then we separate uh, what are the, what is the, the actual release. They're running um, the executable uh, a bit of code, and we take off the, all the rest, which is the typical um, uh, project structure code that is not used uh, in production. This creates a way smaller version of your deployment image and instance, and allows you to have smaller containers. 
Right. And then are you using uh, like Docker's multi-stage builds for that? If you do all the things in, in, in one single stage, it will eventually create a somewhat big final image. And as the project grows and code base grows, it means you're going to play around with a chunky image back and forth. It, it's not something you'd, you'd like, right? So better to keep it small, simple, and nimble. And in your case, when you're spinning up a new instance for every deploy, it's like, well, you have to pull that image, I guess, every single time, right? Yeah. So the difference between like, a, you know, a 700 meg image and maybe like, I don't know what your final one is, maybe like 50 megs or yeah. something like, yeah. yeah, it's a big difference. Yeah. It's huge. Right. So now that the app is up and running in production, uh, do you want to go a little bit over things like how do you plan for disasters and like unexpected events, like database backups and all that fun stuff? Sure. I mean, um, we our data is as straightforward as you can as you can imagine. Uh, we do regular backups of the data. Everything. So the the main data is stored in in Postgres, of course, as we do daily backups of this, and everything that is stored in Redis and Elasticsearch is derived from the main data. So this means that if for some reason we lose the entire database, the entire Redis or Elasticsearch, uh, we will it, it's it will be easily rebuilt from the main database, right? So if something happens, the the end user won't feel a thing because next time the the, the app loads, we will rebuild whatever you need to see. Right, that makes sense. And then warm up the cache, so to speak. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's fine for, for users. I mean, if, if you take a couple of seconds more to load something, I mean, if you're talking seconds, it's not great, but it's better than showing a, sorry, something went wrong our monkeys are looking into it, <laughs> kind of. Um, it, it's, a, it's a way different experience, right? Um, so it's better to wait, in, in, in case of a disaster, to wait a couple seconds and, and then to not see anything at all. Yeah, I'm trying to think, who who had that monkey page? That was YouTube, right? Um, I think, I think uh, there were several iterations of it. Even MailChimp had that for obvious reasons. Oh, speaking of MailChimp, uh, you mentioned sending emails out before, which... Uh, transactional email service are you using we actually use uh we use mailgun and uh customer io for different things and and uh, that's pretty much it very simple right yeah can't really go too wrong with mailgun they've been around for a long time oh yeah i've used them for a long time in completely different projects oh it's it's great I, i i feel that this sort of projects they've always been there it's one of those when, when you start a project and, and you think about stuff like Postgres, Redis, I mean, these tools like um, Mailgun, uh, I don't know, Sentry, uh, Stripe, they, they're always there. Yeah. Like, I can't even imagine what life would be like trying to accept credit cards without Stripe at this point. Oh, I, I can because I did it in the past without Stripe. Stripe wasn't around. And I, I don't want to go back at it to it. And it's just too painful. <laughs> yeah, never again. I actually started with web development stuff way back in like the late 1990s, like a lot of PHP apps, but I never did like a billing app in the early days. No documentation whatsoever. Yeah, Things, that's rough. It, it, would, it was expected. It was okay to wait 10 seconds for a reply from a provider and stuff like that. It's not great. Yeah, let's not bring up those <laughs> memories. <Yeah. laughs> but uh, instead, let's talk about some good stuff like... 
you know, what are some of your best tips and lessons learned from building this app? Um, so one is you should, as, as for all apps, what matters is um, if you ship fast and you iterate quickly, right? Especially on feedback and, and, and course corrections as you go. Um, that's the main the main thing. Over-engineering is something that is very easy to happen, um, especially in great tools like Elixir and, and Phoenix, that you're so close to super performant tools and amazing things like Gen Server, Gen Stage, um, things that allow you to do parallel work uh, with such a with such an ease that it it is very it is very tempting, right? So on one side, it is to keep your eyes on 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 the prize, and make sure that the technology doesn't get in the way, right? Uh, on the other side, is still keep an eye on on technical depth, and it's very easy also to ship code and and then well I'll write this test later or never, or eventually I'll rewrite this in a, in a better way. What I feel with Elixir after several years of using it in production and, and Phoenix as well is um, structuring the code. And even in Phoenix, I mean, the last version of Phoenix uh, changed things a bit, even context changed uh, a bit from the early days of Phoenix. And it's something that it it's, changing it's 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 moving and it will i think be forever moving and changing and that's fine and it's great because it means it's evolving however what i do believe is that you have to find what works for you you have to understand what is the best structure for your code and if that means you're gonna trial something different you should but it also means that you should make sure that things are documented and that you have um, a, a sufficient a code base written in such a way that it is easy to maintain and it's also easy to build upon. Right? Those are the key takeaways, I'd say. Yeah, yeah, I like that one phrase you said, like keep your eye on the prize. I definitely had that problem early on when I was learning Elixir like and Phoenix specifically. It was like, I kept looking for the one way to organize your code base and like everyone was doing it different and it just put me into like an infinite loop of like, uh, too many decisions, can't pick anything. Yeah. So have you made any mistakes in your code base in the past that you kind of fixed up over the years or over the year? Um, sure. I mean, the typical don't write enough tests, write too many tests, go down the over-engineering rabbit hole where you create the perfect structure the perfect code base, and then eventually you spent one week just in refactoring the same file. Um, and, and and Elixir is not free of that, of course. It's just a programming language. It's not a cure to all your problems. The only thing that I feel with Elixir and Phoenix is you have to accept that it is fairly young ecosystem. You have to accept that some things will not be as perfect as you think they are and that you need to be aware of this and manage the risk of it. So whenever you pick an authentication framework or a package to interact with another API, just make sure that it has what you need or if it doesn't, if you're ready to commit and, 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 and to contribute and to build that, right? Because sometimes in, in young communities such as Elixir and, and Phoenix, 
it's easy for you to be looking for something that doesn't exist and you have to build it yourself. Yeah, that's definitely true. So on that note, Marcelo, thanks a lot for coming on the Running in Production podcast. It was really great having you on. Thank you. Likewise. Yeah. So before I wrap this up, do you want to share any links that you have maybe to GitHub repos, Twitter, uh, blogs, stuff like that? Sure. We can. We have um, uh, our own running blog at remote.com. Just give it a look. It's easy. Remote.com. As easy as it, it sounds. <laughs> it's one of those weird ones. It's like, yeah, it's almost, I'm confused that it's so easy. Yes. We do get a, lo- a lot of that. And evil, even people, especially on Twitter, adding remote for whatever reason, which is great. We love to talk to people, but um, it is it is common, but it's fine. It's who we are, and uh, we hope to live up to the to the name. Yeah, I'm definitely looking forward to seeing what you guys you know come up with on that domain. Cool. And uh, on that note, to everyone listening, thanks for tuning in, and I'll see you in the next one. You've been listening to the Running in Production podcast. You can find a full archive of the show at runninginproduction.com. Also, don't forget to subscribe using your favorite podcast player or leave a review if you like the show.